Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, November 1st, 2022. Coming up, the successes, weaknesses, and challenges of the Clean Water Act, just over 50 years after it was passed into law in 1972. Our guests are John Flesher, a national environment reporter at the Associated Press, and Denny Katz, executive director of COPERG. That's the Colorado chapter of the U.S. Public Research Research Group. We'll begin with a couple of brief science news and calendar headlines. We've long witnessed and enjoyed fellow mammals like dolphins and dogs being playful and otherwise expending energy just for fun. But as researchers at Queen Mary University of London recently discovered, insects, and in particular busy bumblebees, not only work hard, they play hard too. In a study published in Animal Behavior, scientists described what happened when they introduced bumblebees to ball rolling. These were small, marble-sized wooden balls, and to the scale of a bumblebee, about the equivalent of a person playing with a large exercise ball. For the first part of the study, scientists trained bees to find balls in one of two colored chambers. Later, when offered the choice of entering either chamber, bees preferred the color of the chamber where they had played with the balls. Another experiment gave the bees the option to walk past the balls to feeding areas. Unmovable balls were placed on the left and mobile balls on the right. Scientists were delighted to find the bees chose to roll the balls, apparently for no reason. If an animal's behavior isn't for a survival benefit, scientists consider that behavior to be play. Researchers also found that younger bees, and especially male bees, tended to play for longer periods of time than adult or female bees. One individual rolled a ball 117 times. The scientists hope this study can shift people's perception of insects from seemingly robotic creatures to sentient beings whose place in the world is as valuable as ours. For How on Earth, I'm Benita Lee. On the science calendar this week, on Friday, November 4th, CU Boulder is offering a live online program for teachers and their classes. Julian Olson-Valdez, a geologist at CU Boulder, will offer an insider guide to geochemistry lab and answer questions via Zoom. The free 45-minute class called Rockstar, Beneath the Scenes with a Geologist, will be presented at 9, 10, and 11 a.m. and at 1 p.m. For more info, educators can contact museumed at colorado.edu. B-L-B's rockin' it, rockin' it, yes, he is rockin' it. Tito, rockin' it, yes, he is rockin' it. Mike C. Rockin' it, yes, he is rockin' it. Hey, sir. Rockin' it, yes, he is rockin' it. We're all rockin' it, you should be rockin' it, rockin' it. You're listening to KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. Two weeks ago was the 50th anniversary of the Clean Water Act. Passed in 1972 and signed by then-President Richard Nixon, the Landmark Act set out to clean up and protect the nation's lakes, rivers, and streams. It was also meant to safeguard the water supply, of course, for humans across the country. 
In many ways, the Clean Water Act has been a success. For instance, industries can no longer legally pour chemicals like PCBs, as well as solvents and other untreated waste, into lakes and rivers. As a result, more fish and humans are swimming in many waterways that were once too toxic to sustain life. But the legislation is also viewed by many as a mixed bag at best. By some estimates, at least half of the country's rivers and streams did not meet the standards of the Clean Water Act. And the legislation faces new threats, including one from the U.S. Supreme Court. Here in Colorado, there's been a lot of progress since the act was passed a half century ago, but also many shortcomings and challenges. Here to discuss some of the progress and challenges are two guests. John Flesher is a reporter at the Associated Press who's covered national and regional environmental issues for several decades. He joins us via phone from his home in Traverse City, Michigan. John, welcome to the show. Thank you, Susan. Good to be with you. And Danny Katz is executive director of COPERG. That's the Colorado chapter of the U.S. Public Interest Research Group, an environmental advocacy organization. He's based in Denver and came to Boulder to join us in the studio. Thanks so much, Danny. Thank you. So, John Flesher, I want to start with you. So, two weeks after the 50th anniversary, could you just, in a nutshell, distill what is the Clean Water Act, or what are the key, what were the key goals? Sure. the The Clean Water Act was uh, was enacted at a time when it, it was sort of a heady period for the environmental movement in general. A number of uh, laws that we know well today uh, were, were established back then, and the Clean Water Act uh, came about. Uh, in, in 1972, following several years of public outrage about some very high-profile uh, instances of, of water pollution, including the uh, the, the fires that uh, actually ignited on the, the surface of the Cuyahoga River in, uh, in Cleveland, Ohio, that uh, got a lot of national attention. And the basic idea was uh, of, of the act was to, uh, as as the text reads, to make the nation's waters fishable and swimmable once more and to restore their chemical, physical, and biological integrity. And it, it gave the newly established EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, a pretty broad authority to uh, to set and enforce regulations to bring that about. And the primary mechanism for doing so was to establish a permitting system for what uh, – in uh, insider languages are called point sources, which basically mean factories, uh, industries, uh, or sewage treatment plants that discharge pollutants directly into waterways through ditches or pipes. There's a, a direct conduit there. Right, and that's a really key, important point we'll get to more later, right? These are the point source, yep. the ones that have a clear origin of that discharge, right? Correct, right. Right. Mm-hmm. And established a system to limit uh, how much pollution they could uh, could emit into the waterways. And how would you describe like some of the key, couple of examples of some key successes on a on a national level? Right. Well, what you you have seen is that uh, many waterways, lakes, rivers, streams around the country have indeed gotten cleaner. And uh, while we still have some notorious examples of spills, major spills that have taken place, there uh, uh, there are fewer of those than, than there once were. Uh, the 
uh, statistics that we get from uh, from EPA indicate that uh, that many of the the nation's waterways have now uh, recovered. Uh, although there are uh, numbers that suggest that uh, roughly half uh, are still considered impaired under the law, and so it becomes sort of a, a glass empty or glass glass half full uh, type of, of question. Uh, there have been many improvements. Uh, there are many waterways now where it is safer once more to get in and swim and fish. The Cuyahoga is a primary example of that. It has recovered in many ways, but it still remains impaired hmm. uh, because of some, some lingering pollution problems. And Danny Katz, Executive Director of COPERG, you've been working on a lot of these issues in Colorado for many years. What would you say are a couple examples of successes or progress that's been made thanks to the Clean Water Act here in Colorado? Sure. Yeah, I think what we've seen in Colorado, much to what John was saying, is that there are, you know, there's less facilities putting less pollution into waterways here. Uh, in our most recent report, taking a look at data from um, the toxics release inventory, we found that... From the EPA. Correct, right? yeah, mm-hmm. that there's just over 20 facilities right now that still have permits to, to put pollutants, um, mostly nitrates, into our waterways. And so um, we want that to be zero. That's the goal, and that's where we should be heading. But for right now, I think we've seen, you know, uh, significant progress in terms of the number of facilities that are putting uh, pollutants into our waterways. Interesting. And just to flesh that out a bit, uh, the nitrates largely from wastewater treatment and or agricultural sources? It's a number of different facilities. If you look at the the 20-plus facilities in Colorado, it, it spans um, uh, a large brewery out in Golden to um, uh, meatpacking uh, industries to um, uh, refineries uh, in Commerce City. So it's a number of different types of facilities, and, and we have that uh, categorized on our uh, Wasting Our Waterways report. And we'll link to that uh, on the show, on the website. Um, John Flesher of AP, so if you were to give... The Clean Water Act and the regulators of it, a report card right now, what would it be? <laughs> well, that's uh, it very much depends on your perspective. I think the, the people I've talked with would, would generally you know, put it in the maybe in the B category of uh, uh, certainly uh, successes, but uh, a, a good ways to go. And uh, part of that has to do with uh, some of what the law doesn't cover and some ongoing uh, debates about what uh, what waters are covered under the act it, it's interesting that 50 years after it was signed into law that there are still some pretty basic questions about what it can and cannot do and one of them would you say related to wetlands like they are covered but it seems this gray area as to seasonal streams within the wetland context are they protected and thus discharge into them that's right. Uh, just last month, uh, coincidentally enough, uh, right around the, the time of the uh, anniversary, uh, the Supreme Court was hearing arguments in yet another uh, case uh, getting to that basic question of, of what waters have federal protection under the Clean Water Act and which ones don't. It is uh, widely agreed that what are called navigable waters are covered, and here you're talking about uh, waters basically where you can put a boat in. And, uh, and move from, from one part of the, of the waterway to another. Mm-hmm. Now, there, uh, it's also widely agreed that wetlands, which are directly adjacent to these navigable waterways, are also covered. Where it gets hazy 
is with wetlands that are farther away from the navigable water and may not have a direct surface connection that's visible and obvious. So they're disconnected also, to a larger body, at least for some of the year, right? Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. And you also have, particularly out west where you are, a lot of what are called ephemeral streams uh, that are rain-dependent and may have a lot of water flowing at certain times of the year, and others may have very little or even none. So what do you do about those? In the upper plains, you have what are called prairie potholes, these <laughs> isolated sort of wetlands that are very essential for migratory birds of one type or another, but again, don't have that direct connection to a navigable waterway. So this has been a, an issue of debate for decades, uh, both uh, in, in regulatory agencies like EPA and the Army Corps of Engineers, as well as in the courts. And just to put that into a context, could you say like roughly what percentage of the water we're talking about in the U.S. is of or from these so-called ephemeral streams? Like it sounds like, oh, there's just a little here and there, but we're talking a, a large amount, Right. Well, it, it is a large amount. In fact, uh, one of the sources I was speaking with for my 50th anniversary story last month, uh, John Devine of the Natural Resources Defense Council, said that really what's at stake is about half of the waterways in the country. When you add up these isolated wetlands, the ephemeral streams, the prairie potholes, and others that are in that gray zone where it's, uh, it's debated whether they're covered or not, uh, we're talking about thousands of miles of uh, wetlands and uh, or acres of wetlands and, and thousands of miles of, of streams that are, are in that area that may or may not be covered. Wow, so about half yeah. of the water exactly. in the U.S. that so by, would be or should be there, protected. Again, there's some debate about that, but mm-hmm. uh, it could be as much as that, yes. Well, so break down a bit, um, and then we'll turn to Danny Katz, but break down a bit this Sackett versus EPA that the Supreme Court just took up. What's what's the the status and the premise of it now. Yeah, that's that is one of these sort of classic cases where you you had a couple uh, living out in in Idaho who uh, had a piece of property, wanted to uh, develop it, uh, build a house on it, and part of the property did have some wetlands on it. Now there, uh, it was some distance away from uh, a lake, and so the the question became: was it uh, was this wetland part of a a, a system that went down and and included the lake, or was it isolated? And uh, regulators, federal regulators, uh, told them that they could not uh, do their construction there because it was a part of of a continuous wetland uh, waterway. They fought it. The Sacketts fought it. It had gone all the way to the Supreme Court. And uh, here we are yet again. It's much like uh, the Rapanos case, which was based here in Michigan uh, back in the mid-'90s, which also went to the Supreme Court and produced a very fractured set of rulings from the justices. There's just a lot of debate and confusion um, to this day about which uh, which of these wetlands are, and waterways are included and, and which are not. So when will the Supreme Court likely decide on it, you know, rule on it, and whatever that outcome is, what the consequences could be? I think generally they would would rule within the, the next year uh, on on this particular case. That's, that's typically the, the time frame that they that they have, and we'll just have to see what they come out with. Whether there is whether they're fractured once again, whether there is a, a more definitive ruling. Uh, there is a pretty solid con- uh, conservative majority on the court now, and 
there is some thinking that they may use a, uh, a standard that was argued for by uh, late Justice Scalia uh, previously that would uh, would basically require a very definite connection between a wetland and a navigable waterway to be uh, to be regulated, or it may be something else. But uh, whatever it is, there will undoubtedly be. Uh, instructions to regulatory agencies like EPA and the Army Corps to to develop their regulations accordingly. And at the same time, the Biden administration is working on yet another set of regulations to try to answer these questions. So uh, the extent to which they'll be able to do that may depend largely on what the court rules. Thanks. And Danny Katz of Coburg here in Colorado are there similar, maybe not yet Supreme Court cases, but I would imagine, given this is, you know, water war central, that there are some cases given the wetlands that we have. Is this super critical issue here in Colorado as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think anyone knows here in Colorado, we're suffering from a drought, so Mm. we can't afford to lose a single drop of water to any sort of pollution. And it's hard to protect our waterways if you're not protecting the sources of those waterways. Um, If you hike around Colorado, you know there are times where you know, streams are, are, are feeding our rivers and they look mighty in the spring and then they're down to a trickle or nothing in the fall or winter. And so it does seem critical to ensure that we are protecting um, every source of uh, everything that feeds into our different waterways here. I think that's one reason why the Colorado Attorney General filed his own legal brief in the Supreme Court case you were just talking about, because he recognized how important this case is going to be to a state like Colorado that has so many of the kinds of of, of, of rivers and streams that for years were, of course, considered part of the Clean Water Act and are now being uh, thrown up in the air by this Supreme Court case. Yeah. Uh, For those who are joining us late, I'll take a little break. You're listening to KGNU in Boulder, Denver, Netherlands, Fort Collins, and elsewhere around the world, KGNU.org. I'm your host, Susan Moran, and I'm discussing successes and lingering challenges of the Clean Water Act 50 years after it was signed into law. And our guests are John Flesher, National Environment reporter at the Associated Press, based in Michigan, and Danny Katz, executive director of Coburg here in Colorado. Um, John Flesher, I want to turn to you and ask about lead in drinking water. Obviously, Flint, Michigan was a huge, huge case a few years ago, but not the first and sadly not the last. What's kind of the status now of successes and failures to the degree that that also ties into the Clean Water Act. And I would imagine also the, what was it, the Safe Drinking Water Act passed a couple years later? Yes, correct. The uh, The Safe Drinking Water Act was passed in uh, 1974, a couple of years after the Clean Water Act, and, and this was the law that uh, established uh, standards for quality of drinking water in the U.S. And uh, it focuses on uh, whether you're talking about surface waters or underground uh, sources for your, your drinking water. And uh, a, a number of rules uh, came out of that, including what's called the lead and copper rule uh, to limit amounts of those particular pollutants in waters. And uh, yes, uh, as, as you note, uh, lead and, and copper both have been ongoing concerns uh, in many parts of the country uh, because they uh, many of the uh, the water pipes that feed homes and, and businesses, schools, and, and other establishments 
were made with lead or copper. And uh, over time, they have corroded and uh, have, have created some pretty serious problems. Uh, in the case of Flint uh, here in Michigan, this was a very long and convoluted case, but briefly, uh, the city uh, had been getting its water from Detroit, uh, which draws it from Lake Huron. It's a very clean source, and it became costly, and Flint wanted to develop its own uh, its own source of water from Lake Huron, and in the meantime, switched over to a river, the Flint River, that flows through the town. It was uh, quite polluted. The water was not treated properly for uh, to prevent corrosion. And so a lot of lead broke off of the, the pipes, got into the drinking water with uh, some pretty serious consequences. Including, so that could is, you just yeah. lay out a couple of those, uh, particularly many, children and their cognitive abilities, right? Indeed, yes. Uh, uh, virtually any uh, amount of lead uh, is considered unsafe, especially for children, and, and what it can do to their, uh, to their nervous systems as, as they develop. And uh, this is, while Flint sort of became a poster child for that, it's, it's an issue uh, in many places uh, around the country. And the, the Biden administration has made uh, getting rid of, of lead service lines a uh, priority, and there is funding in the, uh, the infrastructure law that was passed last year to help to, uh, to replace them. So that is uh, something that's ongoing in, in, in Michigan here and in many parts of the country. Yeah, and um, Denny Katz of Coburg last week, I guess, was the National Lead Prevention Awareness Week, and like Coburg already has had, and maybe has accelerated a campaign that it has on tackling lead in schools. Talk about that, and like how successful has that been? What are some of the key health consequences with that as well? Sure, yeah, this is definitely challenging. Mm-hmm. We know that school districts, especially here in Colorado, have, have limited dollars, and to get lead out, a lot of school districts have taken to um, basically you know, upgrading the pipes in their buildings, but that can be long and, and costly. We recommend taking a filter-first approach. So while we should be doing those major infrastructure improvements, we should at least put filters on every single source of drinking water in a school. And a filter is something you put on the outside. You can put it into mm-hmm. where the drinking fountain is Just or where like the... many have in their kitchen. Yeah. Larger system like that. And they work quite well to get the to get the lead out. And that filter first approach allows you to avoid some of the challenges that comes if you try to test ahead of time. Testing isn't always accurate. You know, lead can come and go as the pipes are used more, you know, more or less. And mm. so if you try to test and then identify the troublesome pipes, we just recommend based on our infrastructure and our history, they almost all will likely have lead in them. So best, safest approach is filter first, protect everyone right now. And there is dollars, there are dollars available, both from the federal government, as John said, but also mm-hmm. here in the state, we passed a bill recently that also can, some of those dollars can be used to help with that filter first approach. That's what we encourage school districts to start with and then get at the back end um, uh, over time. So not a Band-Aid approach that would obviate or let them off the hook for doing the larger fix, but something that'd be effective in the interim. Exactly. I mean, tomorrow my kid is going to be drinking water from a fountain in her school, and Mm. I want to make sure that 
water is clean tomorrow. And so this filter first approach can allow us to get into those schools and protect kids quickly um, and give us the time to then get at the back end infrastructure that many um, water utilities are, are working to get at here in Colorado. And would you estimate or have you seen estimates on, for instance, what percentage of school, public school or private school, schools in Colorado have water that is not safe were it not filtered right now? The data is incomplete in Colorado. However, the bill that was just passed will require that every school district will have to um, test their um, water fountains and drinking water areas and report that information in May. And so we're hoping that school districts don't wait till May because again, as I said, testing can identify some problem spots, but it can miss some others. And so we'll have more data in May, but in the meantime, we should all just filter first. Right. And then one other key area, we just have time to brush on it right now, but is the um, so-called PFAS chemicals, that category of the, what they call forever chemicals, because they don't break down the per or polyfluoroalkyl substances. This is a huge issue around the country and here in Colorado. Maybe John Flesher, can you address some of that and how the Clean Water Act needs to do more to make sure that these are not, you know, killing people? Right. Well, the uh, the, the EPA uh, is developing uh, standards uh, for PFAS uh, chemicals. In August, they uh, issued a proposal to designate the uh, two of them, PFOA, PFOS, uh, the most widely used in this family of chemicals uh, is hazardous substances. This would be under a different law, CERCLA, the Superfund law, to hold polluters accountable for cleanups. And uh, they also, uh, in June, released um, some health advisories and uh, about a billion dollars in the infrastructure law uh, is designated for cleanup of PFOS chemicals. This is something that uh, the EPA is uh, is continuing to study and is under pressure from a lot of uh, advocacy groups to develop nationwide uh, hard and fast standards for for drinking water. And uh, while they work on that, a number of states have been going ahead on their own, developing their own standards. Michigan uh, has among the tougher ones. They uh, have a, a maximum amount. Of, uh, of eight parts per trillion for PFOA, 16 parts per trillion for PFOS, which are uh, considerably tougher than the, the federal advisory standards right now. So that's very much an ongoing thing. It, it's uh, something that uh, regulators are still trying to come to grips with. So it sounds like a lot of progress has been made, a lot more to go. Um, given that we're running out of time now, I think I'll save that for actually a whole nother show would be great on the PFAS chemicals. So um, I want to thank you both. First, John Flesher, National Environment Reporter with the AP Press based in Traverse City, Michigan. Thanks so much, John. My pleasure. Thank you. And Danny Katz, Executive Director of COPERG, the Colorado chapter of the U.S. Public Interest Research Group. Thanks so much for coming into the studio. Glad to join you this morning. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is I, Susan Moran, and I also produce today's show. The show is engineered by KGNU News Director Shannon Young. Headline contributions from Benita Lee. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Fearless Four. 
Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran.